was uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were in, Samantha and myself, we were in Tennessee, I think I mentioned this. And uh, we went down to my, my mom. She's from Tennessee, uh, Hills type of area. And my father as well, he passed several years back, but they raised us kids in Chicago. When we were in Chicago, my dad had lost his southern accent right away. I mean, before I was around, I think, you know, working with all the Yankees, he kind of lost this thing. My mom, however, stay-at-home mom, she didn't lose it quite so much. And when she went back to Tennessee 20 years ago, I mean, it came back in spades. It was, I mean, we go down and you remember, you, we go to the store and they're in line and, and they're talking to each other and, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? And you go, wow, how are you? How are you? What are you talking about? And I asked myself, how did my mom learn to talk this way? I know, where did she get this accent? Um, is this like a virus you get down south, below Mason Dixon line? Is this uh, something that you can only get in the southern states? How come the, the people in Boston can't pronounce ours? You know, pock the cock kind of thing. How come the, the folk in Canada always say A and refer to their mom as mum? And you get down to it, and when it's all said and done, is one word, mimicry. My mom saying the words the way she heard other people saying the words when she was growing up, trying to figure out how to put this together. She was responding to the example before her. Matter of fact, uh, example is the number one most effective, most substantial teacher. We recognize this in our institutions, in our universities. And it seems like the universities have really grabbed onto this thing in the past 15, 20 years, where they teach you all the theory, but now there seems to be a major push on internships where you you have to get the theory but then you go see somebody who has taken the theory and turned it into action and when you can watch them do it you go ah i got it now or have you ever got a new job and you go get a new job and it's going to incorporate some sort of training most probably part of that training will most probably be shadowing somebody who is proficient in what you're supposed to be doing and so you watch them do what they're supposed to do Got it. You can show me all the video and you can talk to me and you can give me all the instruction. But I watch somebody do this. I I get it. And this is why the author of Proverbs says that if you walk with the wise, one of my favorite Proverbs, 1320, if you walk with the wise, you'll be wise. It's not rocket science. But a companion of fools suffers harm. It's just, it's what happens. You take on the, the characteristics and the quality of those around you. We see somebody that we respect and we really appreciate. And you know what happens? Is we begin to implement. We, we alter our lives, our attitudes, our words, our thinking, our, our phrases. You, it, all the time this, this happens. And this happens in the secular world. This happens in, in the church. Don Carson, in his book, Basics for Believers, talks about when he was a freshman at McGill University, started a, a, a exploratory Bible study. And so they had like 14 guys coming to his dorm room on a regular basis, trying to figure out what Christianity was about. He said he realized he was over his head, and some of these guys were asking questions that he didn't know what to do with. But he knew there was a guy on campus named Dave. Dave was a graduate student whose reputation was uh, that he was very effective in communicating uh, what it meant to follow Christ and basic doctrine. And so at one point, Don Carson brought a couple of these guys to see Dave. And he talks about it. He says that when they came to see Dave after their niceties, Dave looked at one of them and said, Why have you come to see me? The student replied along these lines, Well... You know, I've been going to this Bible study, and I realize I should probably learn a bit more about Christianity. 
I'd also like to learn something about Buddhism and Islam and other world religions, and I'm sure I should broaden my perspective in this period while I'm in the university. It seems like a good time to explore religion a little. If you can help me with some of it, I'd be grateful. Dave stared at him for a few seconds and then said, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. My jaw dropped, and the student thus addressed was equally nonplussed and blurted out, I beg your pardon? And Dave replied, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but I only have so much time. I'm a graduate student with a heavy program myself. If you have a dilettante's interest in Christianity, I'm sure there are people around who could spend a lot of time and energy showing you the ropes. I can introduce you to some of them and give you some books. When you're really interested in Christ, come and see me again. But under the present circumstances, I don't have time. He turned to the second student. And why did you come? After listening to the rebuff administered to the first student, the second one may have been a bit cowed, but gamely he plowed on, I have come from what you people would call a liberal home. We don't believe the way you do, but it's a good home, a happy home. My parents loved their children, disciplined us, set a good example, and encouraged us to be courteous, honorable, and hardworking. And for the life of me, I can't see that you people who think of yourselves as Christians are any better. Apart from a whole lot of abstract theology, what have you got that I haven't? Well, this time I held my breath to see what Dave would say. Once again, he stared him down for a few seconds, and then he simply said, Watch me. I suppose my mouth dropped open again. The student, whose name was Rick, said something like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Dave answered, Watch me. Come and live with me for a month, if you like. Be my guest. Watch what I do when I get up. What I do when I'm on my own, how I work, how I use my time, how I talk with people, what my values are. Come with me wherever I go. And at the end of the month, you tell me if there is any difference. Watch me. That's a bit cocky, don't you think? Watch me. And yet, didn't the Apostle Paul say the same sort of thing in 1 Corinthians 11.1? He said, be an imitator of me. Do what I do, just as I'm an imitator of Jesus. Edgar Guest wrote this poem. He said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusing, but example, it's always clear. And the best of all preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you in the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Now, what if, just what if, there were no lectures on what it means to be a Christian? What if there were no Bible studies on what it means to be a Christian? What if there were no uh, books out there giving us directive after directive after directive on what it means to be a Christian? What if the only way you could learn this was through an internship? And what if somebody came to you and said, I really wonder what it means to follow Jesus. Could you say, watch me. Hang out with me for a month, 24-7. Watch me. And then you'll know. And that's a very convicting question, isn't it? But it's, isn't it the question? Isn't, doesn't it really separate the whole idea between a game and reality? I mean, it's easy to go to church, isn't it? 
It's easy to go to a study and maybe hear some teaching and kind of mull over. But it's a whole different thing to live it out. And Jesus has not called us to do all those other things as an end in themselves, but as a means to radically transformed life. Didn't he say, unless, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. He's looking for radically. So watch me. Watch me. Now, pause right into these Philippians. And in 127, he kind of gives our key verse. He says, whatever happens. I mean, if it's, if it's terrible stuff, if it's affluence, if it's torture, you know, whatever happens in life, it's boredom, whatever happens, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then he gives us an incredible example in Jesus, beginning part of chapter 2. Mike preached on this a couple weeks ago. If you didn't get the CD, you got to get it. Great message. But, but, if you're like me, sometimes when Jesus is held out as an example, you don't say this out loud because it's not politically correct in the church, but I think... Yeah, but that was Jesus. I mean, let's face it. Jesus always did what was right all the time. You know, he never said anything wrong. He always was kind. He always, everything was always, he always nailed it all the time. If I was God, I could do that too. Thank you very much. And when we say that, what we're doing is we're kind of giving ourselves a little margin. We're giving ourselves a way out. We're making some excuses, a little rationalization. Uh, But there's a smidgen of truth with that. Well, Paul knows this. And so he's looking at the Philippians. And he's saying, live a life worthy of, of the gospel. Let me give you two examples. Some guys that are very much non-deity. Some guys that pretty much have clay feet. But if you watch them, if you watch them, and you do what they do, then you will be living a life worthy of the gospel. And he's not talking about people who are like uh, talking heads or authors. Someone who, who you only know from a distance and they can kind of manipulate their image and let you see only what they want to see, what, what they want you to see. These are people that the Philippians know very well. And so Paul puts them out. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for a guy by the name of Jay Kaufman whose uh, uh, message was just real helpful for me on th- this week. But if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the very next text we're going through, chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 19 through 30. If you don't have your Bibles, let me encourage you, please, would you, would you bring it? You need to see it. We could be putting the wrong stuff up on the screen. You need to see it in your own word just to see if what we're saying is, is legitimate. Let's, let's read through the text, and then we'll go back and we'll look at these characteristics. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as with a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore... To send him as soon as I see how things go with me. As soon as he figures out if he's gone before Nero, if he's going to get killed, he's going to send Timothy. Timothy will be his guy. But it says, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He's, he's counting and getting out. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent, Epaphroditus is a Philippian, to take care of my needs For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when I see you, you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. 
So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. As we look at these, these, these folk, again, we want to notice five different characteristics of a life that's lived worthy of the gospel. Asking ourselves individually, God, is there one of them that maybe you'd be putting your finger on for me that I need to be uh, taken into account? First one. Oh, let me back up just a second before I go to the first one. Um, let me give you a real brief, brief, background, brief background on both these guys. Timothy. Real important. Because Timothy's name means one who honors God. And that bespeaks his heritage. Okay, Timothy's grandma and his mom, Jewish. And they poured the Old Testament scriptures into him from an early, early age. His dad was a Greek pagan, probably didn't care a whole lot about it. But his, his mom and grandma, mom's praise God for them, right? Poured scripture into, into Timothy. Then Paul comes around. Apostle Paul, his first missionary journey, stops off in this small town in Turkey called Lystra. He leads Timothy's grandma and Timothy's mom and Timothy to the Lord. And he gives the gospel because that's what Paul does. And they say, they're looking at the Old Testament and they see the gospel and they go, Oh, of course, Jesus is the Messiah that's been promised, of course. So Timothy leaves everything and goes with Paul and becomes his sidekick. Uh, Paul will name Timothy more than any other one of his companions. Timothy is given credit for, um, he's listed as an associate of Paul when he authored Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. What that means is Timothy may have had a say in writing those books. You know, Paul's thinking this out, and Timothy says, whoa, 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 hang on, Paul, wait a minute. Why don't we say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? And Paul would go, yeah, yeah, that'll do it, that'll work. So, so Timothy was part of that whole thing. Timothy was sent by Paul on a regular basis as an ambassador of Paul, basically. He would go to different churches, and he would point elders, and he would uh, clean up messes that are there, and he would discipline folk. And so Timothy was, was, was running this route on a regular basis. Timothy would become the, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And so the books First and Second Timothy, Paul is writing to, to this guy, Timothy. Epaphroditus. Uh, have, don't know a whole lot about Epaphroditus. We do know his name means um, uh, loved by uh, Aphrodite, a Greek goddess. Uh, Epaphroditus is a first uh, century, first uh, generation believer. He's from a very pagan background. Um, to our knowledge, doesn't have a whole lot of gifts and all those kind of things. Not a key leader. Not doesn't hold a special place in the church. Nothing along those lines. But still. Both these guys, the Philippians know well. And so Paul says, watch them. And in our text, first characteristic is compassion. Compassion over consumerism. Let's look at the text. Verse 19, it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. Will you look at that for a second? Paul knows a lot of folk. He's very well networked. Paul is the Christian guy. He knows anybody who's anybody. As far as a Christian leader, they go through Paul at this point in history. Paul is the man, and he knows nobody that has pure motives like Timothy does. Timothy serves out of pure motives. You know, when I was a youth pastor years ago, I had a kid in my group. Um, I'll give you his real name. 
but very, very intelligent. He's one of these kids that just had everything. He had incredible intelligence, never had to work hard. Everything just came to him. He was a sharp-looking kid, so all the girls were all over him. Anything he tried to do, he was incredibly athletic. It was just, it went flawless for him. He was just, he embraced his popularity. Uh, he, he lived the playboy life a little bit. Uh, but also what he did is he came to youth group and he, he, he served at a soup kitchen on a regular basis. Now, I know that he did not really live for others, and he was kind of embracing his, his, his own world. So I asked him one time, I said, what's with this soup kitchen thing? You're there all the time, and it just kind of, and he said, well, he's straight up with me. He said, well, one day I'm going to be applying for scholarships and perhaps an Ivy League school, and that will look very nice on my resume. And I want to, if I want to get into the schools I, need, I want to get into, I'm going to have to set up uh, some of those things on there. And I thought, you know, he's not serving the poor. He's using the poor. In, in the church, a lot of people serve. Over the years, you see all kinds of stuff. But motivation is sometimes real mixed up. Sometimes it's because, you know what, in this world, I'm, I'm always getting yelled at. I'm not in control of my own life. Other people tell me what to do, but in the church, I can be in control. There are times people, I'm important. You know, what I have to do, I don't feel like I'm important, but here I'm important. You know, or, or uh, I, I'm in the church to get, they won't never say this, but to get praise and, and adulation or, or because I'm getting some pressure from my spouse or my, my, my parents or whatever, my kids, or maybe their theology is a little out of whack and it's because I want to really please God or because it's kind of like penance. I've done some stuff that I know. And so this is kind of like paying back God and it will make him happy with me. And that's why I'm so lots of reasons. And if you think about all of those reasons, are those all because of other people? Now, I'm not saying the people who serve in that capacity have zero emotion for the other, other people and hate them all. No, they probably care for them. Not, they, there's a degree of, of concern. But the vast majority of concern, I mean, it's self. It's self. And Paul says, when Timothy serves, you know, compassion drives Timothy. It's, it's not a, a, a desire to use anybody. It's not even some dysfunctional thing. It's a genuine concern. He really cares. It's a compassion, not a, a consumerism. Um, J. Paul Getty. When J. Paul Getty was uh, 1966, Guinness Book of World Records listed him as the wealthiest American citizen. At that point, if you give 2013 values to his money, he was worth $8.7 billion. Not, not bad, not bad. Now, while a lot of, of wealthy folk are considered you know, philanthropists, uh, Getty was considered a miser. And he kept a journal all the time, writing down business transactions and mergers and acquisitions and deals. And blah, blah, blah. Well, his boy, 12-year-old boy Timothy, died at one point. And he wrote this in his journal that day. He said, this is the day that we buried darling Timothy. Sad day. Then Getty went on to do two or three paragraphs of stocks that he had bought and traded that day in order to build up his oil empire. Um, in our culture, in our world, the thing that, it, that, that seeks to, seems to get in the way of genuine purity of compassion is, is a, a, a desire to acquire. That seems to bump the compassion. Compassion number two, this kind of bumps it a little bit. 
That's what Paul would write to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation trap. Now notice it doesn't say those who are rich, because that's not true. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many uh, griefs. Compassion was driving Timothy. Compassion, not consumerism, will drive, drive the individual who lives his life worthy for the gospel. This is the kind of person who picks up when no one's uh, after other people, when no one's looking, somebody who's not going to be upset because they didn't get in the spotlight, someone who's not going to be uh, bent out of shape when their name wasn't mentioned, somebody who is, sees other people through his eyes, someone who truly is like a, a sheep without a shepherd. Uh, this is that type of person who leads their life out of compassion. So let me ask you, how are you doing with this one? Uh, a second characteristic that he mentions is, is consistency. And that's character... Before conformity. Verse 22. It says, You know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. That word proved. It's a great word. The picture is of uh, character that has been refined through fire. Sometimes I, I, I get, uh, especially as, as a, when I was a youth pastor, you would hear this. Some Usually it was a girl would bring this guy to youth group and she would say, He's a believer now. Well, I know that before they started dating two weeks ago, he was not a believer. He was the big the reputation, biggest hellion in the world. But now he's a believer. And therefore, everything is cool, right? And, and, and you hear every once in a while somebody who's a new convert, and they want to jump in and, and be in charge of major stuff at the church. And uh, Paul said when you're, when you're appointing elders, he said, you cannot appoint a, a new convert. Don't lay hands suddenly on, on a new believer. We've all been there. But Paul knows, and you know if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, that, that if you walk with him for a while, you're going to go through the desert. You just will. And you're going to go through fire. And you will come to that crossroads. It's Jesus or reputation. It's Jesus or money. It's Jesus or friends. You're going to have to make those choices. Jesus makes sure makes those choices. So if you're brand new and you haven't made it yet, uh, I, I, I just wait. But somebody who's been through there, and that's what this word means. Timothy has been through there. And it's nothing wrong with being new. We've all been new. That's okay. But he's saying Timothy has been at that crossroads and he's chosen Christ over and over and over and over again. The, the, the word picture, and I'm not saying this right, but the word picture is honesty, but not because he's disciplined his tongue. Honesty because that's who he is at the core. Because he's been refined. Because all of the dishonesty has been taken away. He cannot not be Pure integrity is the, is the idea. And the, the way this often works is, again, what comes out our mouth, because that often reflects what's in our heart. Um, if you're at school and your buddy Bob takes something from the teacher's desk, and you know Bob has taken something from the teacher's desk, but the teacher notices it gone and says, okay, what happened here? And she decides she's going to interview every one of the students individually. And so she comes to you. Do you know what happened to my whatever what do you say? Well, if you were to say, no, okay, that's a straight up lie. We're all there. Okay, that's a no. But you might say, well, um, I'm not saying she did it. I'm not, but I did see Susie by your desk after everybody left. Now, let's say you really did see Susie. Then technically did what you, what you just said a lie? 
That's really what you really do. Unless you define a lie as the intent to deceive, then what you just said was truly a lie. Even though it was technically correct, you did see Susie there. Or if you're, you're there and you're hanging out with your friend and the teacher interviews both of you, and she says, you know what's going on? And your friend pipes up and says, absolutely not, don't have a clue. And you're there going, I didn't say anything. Silence sometimes can be a lie, can it? All right, if you're, the intent is to deceive. That's where you're at. I, mean, you know, I like to, to call it uh, painting the picture. And we went over this a, year, a couple of years ago. Let's just say this is, this is a picture. Now, so I was a couple of years younger. I noticed no gray hair. I'm the guy with his hands in his pockets. But this is a real event. Let's just say this is a real event. Now, your goal, my goal, truth is to paint this event in people's minds so that they see this. This is what really happened. Truth means I paint this so that's what they see. But sometimes when I paint the picture, this is what... It's not a lot of difference. It's the same people, same position, same place, same time, everything. But somehow when I tell it, I just color it just a little bit different. Just a little bit worse than what it really was. Just a little bit maybe maybe bigger. Maybe I'll exaggerate. It's a little bit more painful. It's a little bit more difficult than what really it was there. This basically, but see, this is the truth. And so my job is to paint the picture accurately. Sometimes when I paint the picture, it'll look like this. Where, you know, my memory, the way I remember it, you know, everybody else was just foolish. They were stupid. They were joking around. They wouldn't get serious. But here I was trying to drive them and get it done. And if everyone would have worked with me, but they're just all, you know, they were superficial people but me. Not me, that's another, look, just look. This is what, this is what really happened. I said, this really went out. This is what really happened. But see, this picture's not nearly as exciting as the last one, is it? Sometimes when I tell the story, it'll look like this. You know, I'm trying here. I'm like the only one standing up for truth. I don't understand. Everybody else, now, they really weren't doing these things. I'm going to say that because I know what was in their heart. And motivation, this is what they were really, they were mean, and they were fighting, and they were trying to hurt me, and they were against me, and they were against truth, but there's me. I'm just standing up for it, man, but it's alright, I was just, I was being martyred. That's the way it was, that's how it really came down. But how did it really come down? Oh, this is how it really came down. Uh, when I tell the story different, even though it had the same people in it, why tell the story different, attributing things to motivation that really weren't there, or at least that I'm really not sure of. That's not true. That's lots of lies. Sometimes when I tell the story, what, what can I say? <laughs> yeah, I had the right answer. I'm the one that saved the day. I'm the one that brought it. Even if the whole team may have brought it together, you know, really it was just... <laughs> It was me. And everybody recognized and they just all want to be like me. <laughs> when I color it, sometimes I can color it this way. But now this is really what happened. The truth, I don't nearly look as good with this picture as I did with the others, do I? And other people don't nearly look as foolish or evil or wrong uh, in this picture. The truth is they did in those others when I got done coloring it. Truth is helping other people to see what is. And Paul says that if, in fact, you're a man of proven character, a man of integrity, 
then in coloring the picture correctly will just, you cannot not do, this is who you, you, will, you will be. And if you want to live your life worthy of the gospel, there will be a consistency of truth on a regular basis, even when it hurts, truth on a regular, regular basis. Third thing. It's a cooperation, I think we see. And I, verse 25. I'll tell you, I'll unpack this one a little bit more for you. Competition, co- cooperation over competition. It says, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. You know, I, I like this a, a lot because at this point in history, Paul is a He's in jail, but he's a spiritual rock star. He's every believer's hero, just like today, many people's hero. And how many people want to, one of my favorite guys, Paul, I might say, how many of your favorite guys is Epaphroditus? Who's Epaphroditus? I don't know. If they had Christian trading cards, you know, Paul's name would be in there. You know, I said Moses and David and Jesus and Paul's up there. Epaphroditus wouldn't even got one. He has no gifts to our knowledge. He doesn't have a whole lot of... uh, uh, Kutza, a lot of a lot of personal. He's, he's Epaphroditus, but look at how Paul addresses this guy, my brother, and the word is is deep affection. He says, "My fellow worker." You know, he's saying we're in the trenches together. I'm not his superior. I'm not telling him what. I'm not controlling. We're, we're team players, man. We're, we're working together. He's my fellow soldier. He's my wingman. He's got my back sometimes. I have his back sometimes. We're, we're, doing, we're in this together. One of the things that keeps us from being team players, from, we, want, we love uh, maybe uh, we're Christian tennis players. It's a solo game, man. I win or fall by myself instead of like baseball or football or basketball. One of the things that we uh, want to stay individual versus uh, recognize Christianity is more of a team sport and therefore elevate others is our competitive nature. I think of you know Jimmy Johnson when he coached the uh, Cowboys, divorced his wife, wouldn't go see his children at the games, wouldn't, wouldn't spend any time with his parents because they would distract him from winning. And we all know winners what it's all about. Losers, who has got time for losers? We have this competitive thing somehow inside us where we even will judge others, believers, based on what they wear, how cool they are, are they culturally fine, do they have any idiosyncrasies? We've got our ideas of what is right. We judge them accordingly. But Paul says, if you want to be someone who, whose life is lived in a manner worthy of the gospel, you're going to view other people not through a competitive mindset. I'm okay with them as long as I'm a little bit better. You're going to view other people. We're, we're a team. You're going to view your fellow believers as God does, not as, as culture does. He goes on, and I think his next one is, is, is commitment, the next characteristic. Commitment to the cause of Christ before comfort. He says, for he longs, he's talking about Epaphroditus now, for all of you, and it's distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Now, back up for just a second. Uh, 
Paul is in, in Rome, 800 miles away from Philippi. He's under house arrest, which means he has to rent his quarters. But he's still chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He can have visitors. Matter of fact, he has to have visitors because the way the system worked is the state did not take care of the prisoners. They housed them, but if they ate, it was only because of friends and family. If they were clothed, it was only because of friends and family. If they had medicine, it was only because of friends and family. They could have almost anything that friends and family would bring them, but the state was not going to give them anything. Well, Paul's in house arrest in Rome. And the church at Philippi gets word of this. That Paul's got to rent his own place. He's got to eat. He's a tent maker by trade, but he can't make tents. So how's he going to be taken care of? So the church at Philippi says, Paul, the guy who started us, is in prison. Let's take an offering. Let's take a love offering. So they take this big old offering, and they got all this cash, and they say, okay, someone's got to go deliver this to Paul. Who's going to do it? It's, It's 800 miles away. That's six to eight weeks one way. And if you're carrying all this money, you kind of got a target on your back. But who's going to do this? And Epaphroditus raises his hand. Epaphroditus is, we go into all the wise, but he's somewhere probably in his, his early 30s. Married, kids, church, probably 50 people. They all know each other. They're all close. His family, he's there, they're saying goodbye. They're going to wish him well as the day he walks away. He's got this gift. Maybe he has a, a couple of other people going with him. He gets down the road quite a spell, and he gets sick. Now, this wasn't just a cold. He got sick. Paul said, almost died. That's pretty sick. And before modern medicine, when you came to death's door, more often than not, you just went through it. It's just the way life was. And so... Epaphroditus is on this journey and he's got to get Paul this money because Paul needs this to survive and keep the gospel going and and, uh, he gets sick. And maybe one of his travelers is saying, Epaphroditus, I think you you got the sickness, man. We better turn around and go back back home. And Epaphroditus says, no way, man. We got to get this to Paul because if we don't, what's he going to do? He's going to die in prison. We have to help him here. And so we're going to go. And so this one of his guys probably goes back home and tells his wife and kids in the church, Epaphroditus has got these sickness. I've saw him. And they know when you get the sickness, you're done. And then you got, made it to Paul's quarters, gave Paul the gift, shared some stuff with Paul about the church in Philippi. Paul writes this letter. And then Epaphroditus is freaking out as it gets better, because miraculously it gets better, because he knows his wife and kids are, are thinking the worst. And his church, his friends, his relatives are thinking the worst. And so he's all anxious, and Paul's anxious for him, and so Paul sends him back with his letter. Now, the cool thing about Epaphroditus is, again, he's got no gifts that we know of. If he tried out for the uh, worship team, he probably wouldn't have made it. Uh, he's not preaching any major crusades, he's not, but, but he's serving. He's doing what he can do. He's doing what he ought to do here. All the way up to the point where he almost, almost died. He was committed to the cause of Christ. He said, you know what? Even if I die here, the gospel's got to move forward. The gospel has to keep going. I mean, that, that can't stop right now. I mean, this is not a thing where he's got a big job where he gets the limelight. He's just, but he recognizes that it's not about his life. It's not about him being able to survive. It's about the gospel moving forward. Paul says, if you have that kind of commitment to the cause of Christ over your own comfort... That's one of the characteristics of somebody who's living their life worthy of the gospel. And then, number five, 
courage. Verse 29 and 30 says, So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. The Philippians couldn't all carry the gift. They, he was their representative and he almost died doing it. The word risk, fascinating word. It's, it's actually a gambling term. And uh, it means to bet. And what Paul's saying is Epaphroditus bet his life on the gospel. Epaphroditus' mindset was, if this is not true, my life should be a waste. I should have lived for it so much that if it's not true, my life was a waste. Now, you, let's face it. You know as well as I do that many of us live one foot in the church and one foot kind of in the world to the extent where if it is true, you know, we're going to heaven, things are covered, it's cool. But if it's not true, our life is still pretty good. Things are still okay. Things are still all right. We're, but Epaphroditus, the mindset of one who lives this life worthy of the gospel, bets their entire existence. On the gospel, this is not true. My life was a waste. That's that's the mindset Paul says. Ah, that needs to be there. When I was at uh, Moody, Mike Wheeler came in. Uh, we came in together. Neat guy. And we tried out for the band together. And he was on my floor. And uh, we kind of uh, kindred spirits. So I like Mike a lot. We both played brass. We called each other. We were in Greek together. He was way better than I was, so I loved to study with him so I could actually learn know that example thing. Um, we called each other Adolphos. It was the Greek word, word, Greek word for brother. Hey, Adolphos. Um, we got done with Moody. He went on to Dallas Seminary. Um, he lived in Minnesota, so every once in a while he'd stop off at my house in Chicago when he'd catch his planes at O'Hare, and, and we, would, we would hang. He got done with, with Dallas, and he, he felt called to Bolivia. So he went to Bolivia as, as a missionary. Went down to Bolivia, he was, but he was working in their seminary. He was, get this, he was teaching Greek and Spanish as an English person. I just I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine that. Oh, But he was, he's, he's able to pull this off. He's doing this. He's, he's concerned for the pastors in Bolivia, that, that the churches are strong, that they're, they're teaching the word of God correctly. And so that's where he's there and he meets Marge. Marge, a Canadian missionary who's also in Bolivia. They fall in love. Neat re- relationship. Uh, I have a daughter, Amanda. Then Marge is, is, is diagnosed with, with breast cancer. Uh, they come back to Minnesota, which is his home, Mayo Clinic. And he, uh, she goes through, you can imagine, a year of uh, surgeries and chemo and radiation and uh, on again, off again stuff. But it looks like uh, she's going to survive. Things are going well. About the time she starts gaining her strength... Mike is diagnosed with stomach cancer. And so Mike is going, you can the surgeries and the radiation, the chemo, and, and it, it, touch and go. I'm praying for these guys this whole time this is going on. Uh, finally, he looks like he, he is, he's going to make it. Things are going well. So as he's starting to gain his strength again, Marge's cancer comes back with, with a vengeance, what it often does. And uh, I think it was seven months later, Marge passed away. And so Mike is still trying to get his strength. He's hanging out in his church in, in Minnesota. Uh, I, me, I'm saying, you know, I'm done with Bolivia. But he's saying, I'm still called. God has me to, for the pastors there. That's what I'm supposed to do. And so he's arguing with his mission agency. Let me go back. And they say, well, all right. So he goes back to Bolivia. He meets Anne. And Anne and Mike get married. And uh, not too long after that, 
X-ray showed some spots on, on Mike's lungs. Did not look good. So he'd been down this road before with his first wife. So he said, you know, time to go back. So he packed up. They created their dog and got it back to the States and everything else for their daughter. After they, they opened him up, he's coming to in the recovery room. And the surgeon says, it's not cancer, Mike. It's like scars or something, but it's not a big issue. You're going to be fine. So this is nothing. I don't know why. It was, probably was, might have been there your whole life. I don't know. It's nothing. Well, again, if it's me, I'm saying, I'm done with Bolivia. You know, I tried. I gave it a... But he said, no, I'm supposed to go back. That's where we're supposed to be. And if I die, I go to heaven. This is not an issue. But the church, the gospel in Bolivia needs to be built. So they're there today serving uh, in Bolivia. He's... Mike, for me, is a modern-day Timothy or Epaphroditus. He's somebody that I watched, and I watch his compassion, and I watch his consistency, and I watch his, his, his character, his heart, his commitment to Christ, his, his love of other people, even at his school. So let me ask you again a question we started off with. If somebody came to you and said, I don't understand this whole Christian thing, could you say, watch me? Watch me.